Book One, Chapter Five of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book One, The Boy Poet, 1819 to 1842. Chapter Five. The Germ of Modern Painters, 1836. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. He was now close upon seventeen, and it was time to think seriously of his future. His father went to Oxford early in the year to consult the authorities about matriculation. Meantime, they sent him to Mr. Dale for some private lessons and for the lectures on logic, English literature, and translation which were given on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays at King's College, London. John enjoyed his new circumstances heartily. From voluminous letters, it is evident that he was in high spirits and in pleasant company. He was a thorough boy among boys. Matson, Willoughby, Tom Dale and the rest. He joined in their pranks and contributed to their amusement with his ready good humour and unflagging drollery. Mr. Dale told him there was plenty of time before October, and no fear about his passing if he worked hard. He found the work easy, except epigram writing, which he thought excessively stupid and laborious, but helped himself out when scholarship failed with native wit. Some of his exercises remain, not very brilliant Latinity, some he saucily evaded, thus, subject, non sapere maximum est malum, Non sapere es grave, sed cum dura epigrammata apotet scribera tuxentis precipu esimalum. In Switzerland and Italy, during the autumn of 1835, he had made a great many drawings, carefully outlined in pencil or pen on grey paper, and sparsely touched with body colour, in direct imitation of the Prout lithographs. Prout's original coloured sketches he had seen, no doubt, in the exhibition. But he does not seem to have thought of imitating them, for his work in this kind was all intended to be for illustration and not for framing. The Italy vignettes, likewise, with all their inspiration, suggested to him only pen etching. He was hardly conscious that somewhere there existed the tiny, coloured pictures that Turner had made for the engraver. Still. Now that he could draw really well, his father, who painted in watercolours himself, complied with a demand for better teaching than Runciman's, went straight to the president of the old watercolour society and engaged him for the usual course of half a dozen lessons at a guinea apiece. Copley Fielding could draw mountains as nobody else but Turner could in watercolour. He had enough mystery and poetry to interest the younger Ruskin and enough resemblance to ordinary views of nature to please the elder so they both went to Newham Street to his painting room, and John worked through the course and a few extra lessons, but after all, found Fielding's art was not what he wanted. Some sketches exist, showing the influence of the spongy style, but his characteristic way of work remained for him to devise for himself. At the Royal Academy Exhibition of 1836, Turner showed the first striking examples of his later style in Juliet and Her Nurse, Mercury and Argus, and Rome from Mount Aventine. The strange idealism, 
the unusualness, the mystery of these pictures, united with evidence of intense significance and subtle observation, appealed to young Ruskin as it appealed to few other spectators. Public opinion regretted this change in its old favourite, the draughtsman of Oxford colleges, the painter of shipwrecks and castles. And Blackwood's magazine, which the Ruskins, as Edinburgh people and admirers of Christopher North, read with respect, spoke about Turner in a review of the picture scene, with that freedom of speech which Scotch reviewers claim as a heritage from the days of Geoffrey. Young Ruskin at once dashed off an answer. The critic had found that Turner was out of nature. Ruskin tried to show that the pictures were full of facts, but treated with poetical license. The critic pronounced Turner's colour bad, his execution neglected, and his chiaroscuro childish. In answer to which Ruskin explained that Turner's reasoned system was to represent light and shade by the contrast of warm and cold colour, rather than by the opposition of white and black which other painters used. He denied that his execution was other than his aims necessitated, and maintained that the critic had no right to force his cut-and-dried academic rules of composition on a great genius. At the same time, admitting that the faults of Turner are numerous, and perhaps more egregious than those of any other great existing artist, but if he has greater faults, he also has greater beauties. His imagination is Shakespearean in its mightiness. Had the scene of Juliet and her nurse risen up before the mind of a poet and been described in words that burn, it had been the admiration of the world. Many coloured mists are floating above the distant city, but such mists as you might imagine to be ethereal spirits, souls of the mighty dead breathed out of the tombs of Italy into the blue of her bright heaven, and wandering in vague and infinite glory around the earth that they have loved. Instinct with the beauty of uncertain light, they move and mingle among the pale stars, and rise up into the brightness of the illimitable heaven, whose soft, sad blue eye gazes down into the deep waters of the sea for ever. That sea whose motionless and silent transparency is beaming with phosphor light, that emanates out of its sapphire serenity like bright dreams breathed into the spirit of a deep sleep. And the spires of the glorious city rise indistinctly bright into those living mists, like pyramids of pale fire from some vast altar, and amidst the glory of the dream there is, as it were, the voice of a multitude entering by the eye, arising from the stillness of the city, like the summer wind passing over the leaves of the forest, when a murmur is heard amidst their multitudes. This, O oh Maga, is the picture which your critic has pronounced to be like models of different parts of Venice, streaked blue and white and thrown into a flower tub. Before sending his reply to the editor of Blackwood, as had been intended, it was thought only right that Turner should be consulted. The manuscript was enclosed to his address in London with a courteous note from Mr. John James Ruskin, asking his permission to publish. Turner replied, expressing the scorn he felt for anonymous attacks, and jestingly hinting that the art critics of the old Scotch school found their meal-tub in danger from his flower-tub, but he never moved in such matters, so he sent on the manuscript to Mr. Munro of Navarre, who had bought the picture. 
Ten days or so after this episode, John Ruskin was matriculated at Oxford, October the 18th, 1836. He told the story of his first appearance as a gownsman in one of his gossiping letters in verse. A night, a day passed er, the time drew near, the morning came, I felt a little queer. Came to the push, paid some tremendous fees, passed and was capped and gowned with marvellous ease. Then went to the vice-chancellor to swear, not to wear boots, nor cut or comb my hair, fantastically to shun all such sins as playing marbles or frequenting inns. Always to walk with breeches black or brown on, when I got out to put my cap and gown on, with other regulations of the sort, meant for the just ordering of my comportment, which done in less time than I can rehearse it, I found myself member of the university. In pursuance of his plan for getting the best of everything, his father had chosen the best college, as far as he knew, that in which social and scholastic advantages were believed to be found in preeminent combination, and he had chosen what was thought to be the best position in the college, so that it was as gentleman commoner of Christ Church that John Ruskin made his entrance into the academic world. After matriculation, the Ruskins made a fortnight's tour to Southampton and the coast and returned to Hearn Hill. John went back to King's College and in December was examined in the subject of his lectures. He wrote to his father on Christmas Eve about the examination in English literature. The students were numerous and so were the questions. The room was hot, the papers long, the pens bad, the ink pale and the interrogations difficult. It lasted only three hours. I wrote answers in very magnificent style to all the questions except three or four, gave him my paper, and heard no more of the matter. Sic transuent bore ea mundi. He went on to mention his very longitudinal essay, which, since no other essays are reported in his letters about King's College, must be the paper published in 1893 in answer to the question, Does the perusal of works of fiction act favourably? or unfavourably, on the moral character. At his farewell interview with Mr Dale, he was asked, as he writes to his father, what books he had read, and replied with a pretty long list, including Quintilian and Grotius. Mr Dale inquired what light books he was taking to Oxford. Saussure, Humboldt, and other works on natural philosophy and geology, he answered. Then he asked if I ever read any of the modern fashionable novels. On this point, I thought he began to look positive, so I gave him a negative, with the exception of Bulwer's, and now and then a laughable one of Theodore Hook's or Captain Marriott's. And so, with much excellent advice about his exercise and sleep, and the way to win the Newdigate, he parted from Mr Dale. This Christmas was marked by his first introduction to the scientific world. Mr Charlesworth of the British Museum invited him to a meeting of the Geological Society, January the 4th, 1837, with promise of introduction to Buckland and Lyle. The meeting, as he wrote, was amusing and interesting and very comfortable for frosty weather, as Mr Murchison got warm and Mr Greenow witty. The warmth, however, got the better of the wit. The Meteorological Society also claimed his attention, and in this month he contributed a paper which Richard Fall says will frighten them out of their meteorological wits, containing six close-written folio pages, and having, at its conclusion, 
a sting in the tail, the very agreeable announcement that it only commences the subject. End of Book 1, Chapter 5 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith <laughs>